your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, okay? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you right now, we are, going to, we are going to slam the Scriptures this morning. And by slam the Scriptures, I mean we are going to... We're going to I'm going to do my best to survey the Scriptures this morning. We're going to jump to like five or six spots, which isn't normally my style. I just feel like we need to. And um, one of the things we're going to do this morning is we're going to talk about... We're going to talk about sexuality in the kingdom... I don't know that we've ever covered this topic here at the Vineyard. And so before I, I get into it, I do want to tell everyone in here that today's message is rated at least PG-13. So if you have a small kid in here and you're not comfortable with certain topics of sexuality being discussed openly and honest, uh, maybe that's just not appropriate, then you know I'd encourage you to take your kid to kids' church or whatever, okay? Um, yeah, I, what I was going to say is I don't know that in our... In our history here at the Vineyard, I don't know that we've ever taken time to discuss sexuality. It's such a big part of, of our lives and our lives together that we, I just feel like this is something we've got to talk about. Because culture is sliding in a certain, certain direction. And culturally speaking, sexuality is a moving target. You know what I'm saying? So, sexual, uh, culturally speaking anyway, sexuality is a moving target, but within the kingdom, it's a fixed position. And that's one of the things we want to cover in the next couple of weeks. Next week, specifically, what I want to talk about is how to keep our way pure. But today, I want to open up with, uh, <clears throat> with a few things. Uh, to begin with, most of this isn't going to come as a, as a um, surprise to anyone in the room. But we live in a hypersexual culture. And what I mean by hypersexual is this. We live in a culture where, where even just a few, a few years ago, less than one generation ago, if a person wanted to go and find or get their hands on sexually explicit photographs, that person would go have to search them out. However, in today's culture, those kinds of images come and search you out. How I many of you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, so what's happened is the hunter has become the hunted. And it is a radical shift. Uh, uh, there, is a, there is a sexual insanity that has, that has fallen upon the United States of America. It's actually falling all over the world, but it's fallen upon the United States of America. And when I even use the phrase sexual insanity, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, and some of you are like, well, I know we're kind of screwed up, but I've never really thought of it in terms of sexual insanity. And even that thought, if it seems foreign to you, it's only evidence of the fact that, that there is a, there's a, a degree to which the, the spirit of the age has, has settled upon our mind, and we've become delusional about the state that we're in. Um, how many of you have ever, ever woken up in the middle of the night, and it was pitch black, and... Uh, at first you couldn't see anything, but after a few minutes, you're able to see in the dark. You know what I'm talking about? So after a while, you become comfortable with your situation, and you assume that it's normal, and you lose sight of the fact that what it really takes to live in life is light. And um, some more evidence of that. Um, even three years ago, no one in this room would have known or even heard of the word sexting. That's just three years ago. It's a new phenomenon. And it's ingrained into the fabric of our society. Um, I was reading this week, there's a, there a, um, there a Washington Post article that was put up in the middle of the summer, sometime in June. And it was, uh, it was just talking about this, this sexual shift that, that the American culture has taken. And, and some, of the, some of the evidence that America has taken a profound and destructive sexual shift is, is the influence that pornography is having on women. No, we don't normally associate pornography with women. We normally associate it with men because men are more visually stimulated. 
But right now in America, and, and some of these statistics that were in this Washington Post article were four years old, which means that now it's worse, okay? So th- these, are, these are just facts that are from 2006. In 2006, 20% of women were addicted to pornography. 20%. Not only that, that number included Christian women and non-Christian women. It didn't matter. You, you, could, you could pull the survey any way you wanted, and 20%, one out of five. Not only that, but at this point, most, um, most conservative, most conservative uh, studies that are done on Internet pornography, out of every three pages that are, uh, one out of every three pages that are opened up on the Internet with respect to pornography are opened up by a woman. Something, there's been a profound shift. It's gone just from being a, a stronghold that attacks men to being a stronghold that's found its way into the lives of, of women, not just unchristian women or unbelieving women, but actually Christian and believing women. Um, and one of the things that, that they've found about the whole pornography industry is that it is creating tons of money, obviously. Uh, but the, the, the amount of money that's being generated in the porn industry is just it's mind-boggling. At the end of 2006... They, the conservative figures were that porn generated revenues in excess of $13 billion. That's billion with a B. That means that pornography in 2006 was a bigger business than the NBA, the NFL, and the Major League Baseball combined. And you know what a, what a sports-crazed society we are. How do we get there? Like, how, do we, how do we make such a shift from being uh, the kind of culture where... where um, where pornography was something you had to go look for a generation ago to being the kind of culture where it comes looking for you. Well, it's just simple supply and demand. And the, 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 the real truth of the matter is that there's been a demand. It's within the human heart. And because there's been a demand within the human heart, somebody will be there to supply it. And when we talk about supply and demand with respect to sexuality and with respect to pornography... We're talking about a demand that's not just outside of the church, but it's us. Why does it exist? It's because we're buying it. It's getting quiet in here. Dang. <clears throat> but it's really, really important. Not only that, but I'd be willing to bet. That's right, the pastor here bets. <clears throat> I'd be willing to bet that every single person in the room has been negatively affected by sexual immorality. I'd I'd be willing to bet that every single person in the room has either directly or indirectly, and and, and by indirectly I mean like closely, like someone in your close family has been has been involved in sexual immorality at some level and it has been it has been a source of huge pain in your life. Either maybe maybe you've had an addiction to pornography, maybe your mates had an addiction to pornography, maybe there was adultery Maybe there was, maybe there was uh, a sexual affair, you know, outside of marriage, and it just, like, totally upended your family for a while. I, I'd be willing to bet that, that every single person in the room has some story and has been affected at a heart level by sexual immorality. And, and it's just the, it's the waters that we swim in right now. And the Lord really wants to touch it, okay? Um, <clears throat> one of the reasons I feel like the Lord wanted to bring this up is because... Um, One of the reasons I felt like the Lord wanted to bring this up is because our sexual experiences, they tend to be the most, some of the most formational experiences that we have. Or if I can say it another way, our sexual experiences tend to be some of the most deformational 
They tend to deform the human heart. Like, um, I'm not a counselor. Furthermore, I don't want to be a counselor. I love people. I just don't want to counsel people. Anybody who knows me well knows what I'm talking about. We have counselors here. They are great. (laughs) I am not one of them. I'm not a counselor. I don't even play one on TV. But what I do know is this. I I know that people who end up in in my office, uh, people who are in the most pain and people whose lives have been the most wrecked, it it always comes back to the same thing. It it almost always comes back to uh, sexual abuse perpetrated against a person or, or they've been entangled you know, their heart was given away, and the next thing you know, they, they ended up in a, in, a, in a place sexually that they never dreamed or imagined that they would go. And they end up in my office, and they end up totally broken. Why is that? Because there's something, there's something about our sexual lives that gets right down to the core of what it means to be a human. It's a really big deal. Let's look at the scripture for a few minutes, okay? I'm going to tell you guys right now, we're going to do some heavy sledding, and then it's going to get better, Okay? So just hang with me. We're going to do heavy, heavy sledding, and then we're going to get a lot better. All right, we're going to look at a couple, just a couple verses here in, in Genesis. Look at Genesis verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 26 and 28. This is just three, three verses, and they're just so power-packed, okay? Here's what it says. And then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. Male and female, he created them. My notes are jacked up. My computer has just been deleting things randomly. So right in the middle, it just deleted like a whole five sentences. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This is the part I really love. He says, God blessed them, and he said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves along the ground. So here's what we got. In verse 26 and in verse 27, we have God, he decides that he's going to create, he's been creating, and he's getting ready to just create his, his last little bit here. And the last little bit is the best part. He creates us. So he creates man and he creates woman, and, and the Bible says that he created them in his image and in his likeness. That little phrase, in his image and in his likeness, uh, nobody really knows what that means other than it is, it is a profound mystery. And somehow, the creator of the universe put an indelible mark upon humanity that cannot be wiped away. It can be, it can be marred, it can be stained, it can be, it can be smudged, but it can't be wiped away. There is an indelible mark upon people. There's an indelible mark upon you. There's an indelible mark upon me. And it came from the creator of the heavens. And we are somehow like him. We are patterned after him. This is such a huge deal. Like, you know, what's the difference between a dog and a person? You know, it's not just fur and a tail. There, there's, there's something more. He has, he has put his fingerprints on us. You cannot take the fingerprints of God off of a person. And so when, and so in, in, this is what C.S. Lewis said. This is so profound. He said, he says, if we were to have run into Adam before he fell, pre-fallen Adam, he says, the, the indelible image of God, the, the power and the glory and the radiance that Adam and Eve were created with. C.S. Lewis said this, he says, if you were to meet them before they fell, you would be tempted to fall on your knees and worship him because he was so radiant and there was so much glory and there was so much honor coming off of him. 
Can you imagine? See, there's something God said. I am like this. It's all good. I made animals. I made furry dogs with tails. I made some squirrels. I, I have no idea why he, there's certain, like platypus. What, I, I don't know what happened there, you know. Some of you, some of you guys know that I watch the Animal Planet. I'm, I'm blown up platypus. That is, I, it has a duck bill, web feet, and beaver tail. I, I don't know, man. It's incredible. But then he was like, I'm going to create humans. And when I went on this part of creation, I'm going to put myself, I'm going to pattern these people after myself. You know? You ever wonder why you were made like this? Like even your body, you know? Your body is, is a perfect design. And it somehow reflects the creator who made you. Not just, not just your mental capacities, not just your spirit capacities, but your body is important. And so he made them, he says he made them male and female in his likeness. They have an indelible image, the indelible imprint. And so when we talk about sexuality, the first thing we need to realize is this, is that that sexuality begins with maleness and femaleness, okay? There is something about God that can only be reflected in maleness. There is something about God that can only be reflected in femaleness. Like, you know, here's the deal. Here's one of the things I know about God. I know that God loves sports, I know that God loves the NFL. You know why God loves the NFL? Because I love the NFL. And there's something, there's something about human maleness that is sort of just like encapsulated in the NFL. Now, I know I am speaking in broad general terms, and some of you guys in here don't even like the NFL, and I question you. But forgive me for that. But here's what I want to say. There is, something, there is something about like the drama on a football field. It is just male. There is something about, there is something about maleness. And by maleness, I mean there's something, about, um, there is something about victory and honor and teamwork and strength and perseverance and playing with a broken finger. Did you guys hear about that guy a couple of weeks ago in football? He was like in the middle of a college game. He had his glove on. And he was his alignment. And somehow, he, you know, smashed his finger between two helmets, okay? And you notice his blood is running out of his glove. They take the glove off, and there's a piece of finger still in the glove. And the coach is like, dude, you got to come out. He's like, I'm not coming out. I'm going back in. You think, that's crazy. No, it's not. It's male, and it's something about that reflects God. You think, Adam, you're crazy. No, there's something about sacrifice. And, oh, I'm just going to hit that guy. You know, there, there is something about victory and strength and and... That can, and you know what? Here's the deal. I know we're laughing. There's something about all of that that is maleness, and it reflects God. He likes it. He likes it. Like the fact, the fact that like there is something about the fact that like we just like men, we just oh, we want to go outside. You know, I'm not so much me. I'm more of a Hilton guy. But I, certain men, certain men want to go outside and do outside things. You know, I don't mind shooting animals. I just don't want to gut them. You know. That's my whole thing. But some guys, I mean, like my father-in-law, like he, he doesn't even, and if you guys know Ray, you know what I'm talking about. Like he doesn't even feel like he's alive until he's gone out and put deer blood on his face, you know? <laughs> Why? Because there's something in males, there's something in males that's like, I will provide for my family, you know? There's something about provision. There's something about protection, it's maleness. It reflects God. If you want to know what God is like, just look at your husband. I know that is so offensive to some people in the room. But it's true, you know? And then the other side of the ball, it's like, 
I know that God likes to shop. How do I know that? Because my wife likes to shop. I know that God likes to keep the house clean. I know he likes to, I know he likes to cook good dinner. I know he likes to make sure that the kids have nice clothes. I know that, he, I know that God likes to make sure that, that when people come over, they feel welcome and warm and that the toilet paper is where it's supposed to be on the half bathroom. Why do I know that? It's because that's how my wife is. There's something about femininity. Not only that, I know that, 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 there's, that God loves beauty because, because most women are just fixated upon beauty. You know what? And it's okay. Can I tell you something? When, when, when my wife is in the, in the bathroom and she is putting lipstick on at a, at a painfully slow pace, after the entire family is 15 minutes late to wherever we're supposed to be, I'm, this is what I know. I know that God not only is okay with it, but he likes it because somehow that reflects who he is because he loves beauty. Like beauty is a big deal. Why is it a big deal? Because it's a big deal to women and it's a big deal to femininity and there's something about like wanting to fix up and make things sure that things are right and take care of people and nurture. You know, one of God's names in the Old Testament is El Shaddai, you know? Y'all remember Amy Grant? Come on. (laughs) Do you know what El Shaddai really means? It means many-breasted one. That's what El Shaddai means? It means many-breasted one. What does it mean? It means there is a feminine... There's a femininity to who God is. There is a nurturing aspect to who God is. It is reflected in females. Husbands, all you have to do is look at your wife. You know, guys, all you have to do is look at the girl you're very interested in and go, there is something in this person that reflects who God is in a way that I can never know him except I get to know that person. It's an imp- so sexuality begins with maleness and it begins with femaleness. Everybody cool? And by the way, it's, it's by his design. He made it that way. <clears throat> I got a song in my heart today. I can't help it. All right, so here's what happened. So God created men and he created women. He created maleness, femaleness, masculinity, femininity. Femininity, I speak for a living. And he placed them in the garden, okay? And here's what the garden is all about. The garden is all about a couple things. The garden is all about his presence, okay? And within God's presence is God's power, his provision, and possibilities, okay? So he takes maleness and femaleness and he plants it in the garden, and in the garden, it's all about presence, power, possibilities, and provision. Okay? I say possibilities. He's like, where do you get possibilities? Well, things grow in the garden, right? All right, so it's all about possibilities. And when he plants them in there, he doesn't just, he doesn't just plant them in there. I, I, I just love them. I love what the scripture says. It says he created them. And then let's look at this. Look at verse 28. This is so important, Okay? Verse 28. So God makes male and female. Verse 28. And God blessed them. Okay? God blessed them. And the reason that God blessed them is because it's his nature to bless. Okay? We've, we've been hammering this hard for the last six months. God, God prefers mercy over judgment. He would way rather bless you than discipline you. He, 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 he is so kind 
and generous. You know, and there's just no one like the Lord. And when Adam and Eve first, their first interactions with God was one where he comes to them and says, I'm going to bless you. Like, we, a lot of us run from God thinking, as soon as we meet him, he's going to smack me, you know? That's really not who he is. Like, when we meet the Lord, he, he speaks blessing to us. And look at the blessing he tells them. God blessed them and he said, be fruitful and increase, increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Stop right there. <clears throat> We're all smart people. Well, most of us are smart people. Would someone please interpret, be fruitful and increase in number? I think it has to do with... What's that, Marcus? The Rogers. That's so good. Come on. Marcus, you get the gold star. Mm. I want you to see this, though. God blessed them. Okay, so underline God blessed them, okay? And he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. How many of you all see the connection between the blessing that God gives them and the, and the command to live by? You see this? God's, God blessed them and he says, be fruitful and increase in number. Part of the blessing of the Lord is, is, the, is, the, is the life vision and the life calling and the life purpose that he gives us. Okay, but like we've already hinted at here, be fruitful and increase in number. How many of you know you can't you cannot be fruitful and increase in number without sex? Pretty obvious, right? What's the point here? This is going to make some people in the room very happy. The point here is this: sex is not a suggestion; it's actually a command. Let there be a shout go up from the people of God. <clears throat> so, number one, okay. Sex isn't just a suggestion, it's actually a command. And number two, sexuality and fruitfulness are directly connected to blessing. And he said to them, and God's blessing. So here's the deal. The Lord connects life purpose and sexuality. He tells Adam and Eve to increase and be fruitful. And not only that, but he gives them the full ability to do it. Okay? He gives them, he gives them a life purpose and then he gives them the full ability to live out their life purpose. All right, this is, this is a principle that's, that's bigger than just sex and sexuality. When God commands something of you, when he, when he puts a life purpose out in front of you, he gives you the ability to fulfill the purpose that he calls you to. You know why? Because he is good. The Lord doesn't set the bar at seven feet knowing that only, the only, even the best athletes in the world can only jump five feet. And then he doesn't step back and go, idiots. That's just not who he is. He sets the bar and he goes, I will make you the kind of people who can clear any bar, you know? But beyond that, this morning, what we're seeing is that God creates maleness, he creates femaleness, he creates masculinity, he creates femininity. We need one another to experience the full expression of who God is. He blesses humanity, he blesses people, and part of the blessing that God gives has to do with sex. It is a good thing. Not only that, but human, human sexuality is a blessing to be enjoyed. It's not a curse to be endured. See, some of us in the room right now, we feel like our, our sexuality is just a curse upon us. Um, how many of you have ever felt like your sex drive was more of a curse than a blessing? I'll take your smiles 
as an affirmative answer. Yeah. See, here's the deal. God gave you a sex drive, and the sex drive is a good thing. So we just have to rewire a lot of our thinking. My sex drive is a good thing. Your sex drive is a good thing within certain boundaries. Not only that, this is, this is a big thing in the church. Sex is not dirty. Sex is not bad. Sex is not shame-stained. You realize that masculinity and femininity, God's blessing, be fruitful and increase in number. You realize his command to, to love one another and, and to be sexually related to one another. You realize that this all came before the fall. So this predates sin. What's it mean? It's a big deal. Your sex life is not dirty. It's a good thing. Verse 31, I think it is. Is it 31? Yeah, verse 31. And God saw all that he had made, and it was what? Very good. It's the first time in Genesis that he says, very good. Up to this point, he's just been saying good. But now it's very, very good. All right, one of the other things that we pick up here in Genesis is the fact that sexuality is so closely tied to creation and identity. Man's identity is first rooted in being created, being a creature, a subject of the great creator. Second, a creature whose likeness is closely related and patterned after God himself. And third, man is a sexual being. And so God speaks life purpose over mankind, which is clearly within the construct of what man is capable of and created for. This is why abuses of sexuality mar the identity of a person which naturally flows from the image of God. A person is what they were created for and their connection to God easily, can be easily damaged by sexual encounters that are out of bounds from God's perspective. What am I trying to say? I, we've already hinted at it. When a person's sexuality leaves God's boundaries, it mars their identity. Okay, What gets damaged isn't just, isn't just the moment, it isn't just the relationship with one person, but when a, when a person's sexuality it expands past the, the borders that God puts up for it, the person's identity actually gets damaged. And when their identity gets damaged, something in them gets frozen. Some of you know what I'm talking about here, either by personal experience or you have a close loved one who's experienced this. How many of you have ever met people who were talented, capable, brilliant, every good adjective, uh, beautiful, kind, and utterly frozen in life, unable to move forward? A, A lot of times, people who are talented, brilliant, capable, funny, every good adjective who are incapable of moving forward are incapable of moving forward because their identity has been damaged. And, and when your identity gets damaged from, from a sexual encounter that's outside of God's boundaries, it will oftentimes put your life purpose on hold. Frozen. See, it's Genesis chapter 1, 26 through 28. God makes man, he makes, he makes woman. He gives them a life purpose. He gives them an ability to fulfill the life purpose. The, the ability to fulfill the life purpose in the beginning of Genesis is, has to do with sexuality. When our sexuality leaves God's boundaries, our identity gets damaged. When our identity gets damaged, it actually puts the brakes on our ability to live out our life purpose. Everybody on, on board with me? Okay. It's a really big deal. <clears throat> I 
to this identity thing. Oftentimes when a person gets stuck or frozen in a certain area, um, some of those, some of us in the room who have, uh, who have gifts of criticism and judgment and be mean, we look at the person and go, dude, that was like five years ago. Move on, right? Except you can't. Like when your identity is broken, you just you can't move on. And so we begin to overcompensate in other areas of our life, and then it becomes more and more out of balance. Let's go back and have the Lord heal identity. Um, I'll tell you a story about somebody um, that I met long ago, but um, whose whose identity was just severely damaged. Um, I met a I met a woman so long time ago, and uh, the Lord was beginning to bring her through a season of healing in her life. And, and in the process of coming through a season of healing in her life, uh, this, is a, this is a woman who is totally frozen. Uh, this is a beautiful, capable, brilliant, all, every good adjective kind of woman who just couldn't get her life on track. And uh, one day she just, you know, out, just out, you know, says, well, you know, because we're just, we're dialoguing. Hey, what, you know, what, what's the holdup? What's, you know, where, where are the hurdles at? And she's like, well, you know, and I could tell she just didn't want to go to this spot. And I said, well, if you don't want to tell me, it's fine. We'll get somebody else in here. And she goes, no, I'm, I feel like I have to talk about it. So she goes ahead and, and tells me. And what, what really the issue was is when she was 14, she began to develop sexually. And at this time, her father came to her. And uh, it wasn't just a one-time event, but it, was, it became an ongoing thing. And her father would grab her breasts, and then he would speak something so vile over her that I won't even repeat here. And he just began to, in no uncertain terms, sexually dominate her, okay? Here's what happens. That moment with her father where he, where he breaks trust, it damaged her identity and who she was, okay? Because now I have a father who is supposed to be, what is maleness? Protector, provider, stro- source of strength. Uh, and by the way, I- identity comes from fathers, you know? And, and the father has broken that trust, okay? So she becomes angry with her father. She feels completely shamed and humiliated. He, and this, and this, this, this exercise of sexual dominance begins when she's 14 and stays with her while she lives at home. Not only that, but it ends up ruining the relationship with the, she has with her mother. Why? Because my mom knew about it and did nothing. Okay? So now my father sexually dominates me. My mom knows about it and does nothing. This young girl's identity gets completely smashed. In the process of getting completely smashed, she just begins to fill it in with what? Drugs. I want to escape. I want to escape my identity. And by the time she's 17, she leaves home and ends up, uh, ends up walking out a, a, a life path of choices that get worse and worse and worse until she's in my office 100% completely addicted to every kind of drug. Not one single relationship in her entire life is healthy. I'm telling you, not one. How does a person get in that shape? They get in that shape when, when, when abuse to the identity comes at a formational age. And abuse to the identity comes especially hard and especially strong when it's, when it's sexually related, especially in, in, in relationships where trust has been broken. Why is this a big deal? Man, you, 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 you break that one spot, and until we go back and allow the Lord to heal that spot, you know, your, your life will be, begin to move in concentric circles outward and outward 
away from the life purpose and the life vision and, and the confidence of identity that comes from being a child of God. And this, by the way, is a person who knows Jesus. Identity is a huge thing. <clears throat> so one of the things I want us to see in Genesis is, is that sex is good. Sexuality is good. Sex is good. Maleness is good. Femaleness is good. If you want to, turn in your Bibles to Leviticus 18. We're, gonna, we're just going to look at just a couple things here real quick, okay? So Genesis tells us that sex is good. Leviticus tells us that sex is powerful and there needs to be boundaries, okay? Leviticus chapter 18. And it begins with, uh, the Lord says, you know, hey, tell the Israelites that I'm the Lord your God and you must do... You must not do as they do in Egypt, where you used to live, and you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I'm bringing you. Do not follow their practices. You must obey the laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and my laws, for the man who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. Okay, here's the main thing that the Lord is saying to his people. His people are, a, at this point, are a, an emerging group of slaves, okay? They have been in, 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 uh, they've been in slavery in Egypt for 400 years, and slavery has a way of dehumanizing a person. After 400 years of being subject to other, to, to other rulers, something about your personal identity gets broken and broken and broken. And God is tr- beginning to bring out, not just, he's not just rescuing them from an oppressor, but he's, he's rescuing them from an oppressed heart. Okay, And this is one of the things we have to see. And so when he says to them, don't do as the, uh, they do in Egypt and don't do as they do in Canaan, the Lord is saying, I, I want to heal your identity and I want to make something new. And in the process of saying, I don't want you to be like where you came from or where you're going, the Lord says, hey, here's some ways that you can, that you can not be like those people that you came from or where, or where you're going. And he says, verse 6, he says, um, no one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations. I am the Lord. Do not dishonor your father by having sexual relations with your mother. She is your mother. Do not have sexual relations with her. How many of you in here think, wow, this seems pretty obvious. Why do we have to spell this out? Can I tell you why? Because identity had been broken and broken and broken in slavery. That's what happens. And so the Lord has to say things to them that seem quite obvious to us, right? All right, now look down at verse 20. Because the Lord just begins to, he just keeps spelling it out, you know. Here, don't do this, don't do this. And what he's doing is he's putting up boundaries, and by boundaries, what I, what I really want us to hear and feel is the Lord is putting up safe fences for us. Genesis 1 tells us that sex is good. Leviticus 18 tells us that sex is powerful and needs boundaries. Verse 20, do not have sexual relations with your neighbor's wife and defile yourself with her. So verse 20 is about adultery. Verse 21, do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech for you must not profane the name of the Lord. You must not profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. How many of you realize that we just made a huge jump from verse twenty to twenty-one? We're talking about having sex outside of marriage with a man's wife who isn't our own, and then the Lord says, "Don't give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech." Anybody recognize that? That's kind of a big jump. Here's the deal. Molech was a false god, is a demon, is a demonically inspired god that was worshipped in the Old Testament. And uh, this is what they would do. Um, 
it, it was, Moloch was especially worshipped by the Assyrians and the Canaanites where the Lord was taking them, okay? This is what they would do. They would, they would build a big fire, and they had like a, like a bronze statue of Moloch. They would build a big fire, and they would heat the statue up until the, the statue was just blazing hot, and his arms were out, and they would take their four spur and son, and they would put him in the blazing arms of this, this statue, and they would sacrifice their children to it. What does this have to do with sexual immorality and keeping safe boundaries? Here's what it has to do. It's very simple. And this is what the Lord's saying. He's saying, when your sexual identity leaves the safe paths that I create for you, you, will, you, will, you could potentially end up walking along a path that leads you to a destination you never imagined that you would end up in. Like, anybody here want to go worship false gods and burn our children? Of course not. Of course not. Except that when we begin to give our bodies away, when we, when we begin to walk off the path that God has, has designed for us, what we're really saying is, God, I don't trust that your boundaries for me are good. That your boundaries for me are good. When, I, when, that, when that place of trust gets broken, you're no longer my God. And when you're no longer my God, that path gets opened up and the next thing you know, you end up worshiping a God that you never imagined that you could go to. Does it mean that you'll sacrifice your firstborn son? Probably not, you'll, but it does mean this. There is a strong link between sexual immorality and worshiping a God that you never imagined that you'd be subject to. Big deal. Really, really, really big deal. Verse 21. Verse 22, rather. Don't lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That is detestable. Obviously, the Lord, hears, the Lord is talking about homosexuality. And one of the things that's alive and well in our culture is, is very quickly right now, like more than I've ever seen in the last 10 years, our culture has become pro-homosexual. And here's the thing. It's, it's become pro-homosexual very simply. Um, it's become pro-homosexual because, uh, because we have, we have in, in smaller ways, we have... We have, we have bought into the idea that sexuality is a moving target. Uh, adultery is no longer a huge issue. It's, it's the thing that we... It's almost as though we're a culture of men and women, husbands and wives, sons and daughters, who are waiting for the other shoe to drop, you know? I've, I've had conversations in my office with people, and, um, you know, they're just... They're, their trust, their ability to trust their mate is just on total lockdown. Even though their mate hasn't done anything... They're just, they're just waiting for that day when they say, well, I've had enough, you know? And it's, be, and it's because we've bought into this idea, that this concept that sexuality is a moving target. We've done that long enough, and the next thing you know, homosexuality is really not a big deal anymore, you know? I mean, they're, you know, we've watched enough home and garden TV that we begin to, we begin to, we begin to build relationships, you know? It, you know it, it's, it's, a, it's a real subtle thing, you know? There'll be, you know, a gay guy on, homosexual, a, a gay guy on home and garden TV, and we go... That guy, I really like him. And it's really, not, not, it's really not about liking or not liking the person. It's about saying sexuality isn't a moving target, you know? And so our defenses get brought down. And the next thing you know, we live in a culture now where, where homosexuality is not a big deal. And homosexuality is just really, is really simply, it's just one thing. It's broken identity. The other, si- the other side of the ball on the homosexual issue is that the church has been utterly tone deaf. And we've talked about this before. The church has said, you know, 
And we said it to homosexuals. We said, you homosexuals, you, you know, dirty, rotten people, you homosexuals, what you need is Jesus. And you need to come into the church and you need to get Jesus. But we keep the doors shut so tight, you know. And we ask them to run through walls and bust their heads, you know, through walls. We ask them to do something that no, it's, it's virtually impossible to do. So we've been utterly tone deaf on that issue. And by the time you get to verse 23, it's just, it's unspeakable. The Lord's saying, don't have sexual relationships, don't have sexual relations with an animal. I mean, it seems obvious, except there's, there's something that happens culturally, and it's even happening right now in America. We're becoming systematically desensitized to God's kind of way. We're, coming, we're becoming systematically desensitized to the, to the kind of paths and to the kind of life that lead to destruction. We're becoming systematically desensitized to the kind of paths and the kinds of life that lead to broken identities which only perpetuate further defilement. So you might be asking, well, why in the world would God put these kinds of boundaries around something that's apparently so good? Well, the reason that the Lord would put these kinds of boundaries around something that's so good is it's real simple it's, it's because sex is a treasure and it requires the right kind of container to hold it okay sex is a treasure it requires the right kind of container to hold it you know none of us would ever take a diamond ring and put it in, a, in an old cardboard box and just throw it in the corner of our closet right no the container the container speaks it speaks volumes about what it holds like my wife has a jewelry box at home And in her jewelry box, she has all of her most special treasures, okay? Some of them are worth lots of money. Some of them are worth very little, except they hold incredible sentimental value, you know? When I was in high school, I had a special ring made for Heather because we're high school sweethearts. I I designed it. The jeweler made it. It's not very, it's, in fact, it's very ugly, but it means a lot to her and me because it was, and you know where she keeps it? She doesn't just, she doesn't just throw it on the kitchen counter. She doesn't put it in a cardboard box and pitch it down with the shoes in the closet. No, she puts it in a special kind of container, and it's the kind of the container that can hold, it's, it's specially made for the kinds of things that should go in. So she puts it in her jewelry box. You know? And when we, begin to move, when we begin to move sex outside of the right kind of container, it's kind of like, it's kind of like hanging the Mona Lisa in McDonald's. You know? <laughs> yeah, when, when, we, when, we begin to take, when we begin to take our sexual relations and we move them out, outside of the right kind of commitments, it's like hanging the Mona Lisa at McDonald's. It just, it doesn't fit. It doesn't work. There's something about the architecture that doesn't speak to, to what's being hung inside of it. And here's what will happen. If you hang the Mona Lisa in McDonald's, McDonald's doesn't become more special. The Mona Lisa becomes less special. And after a while, this is what happens. There'll be grease splatter all over the Mona Lisa, and there'll be fingerprints on the Mona Lisa, and the next thing you know, the Mona Lisa is ruined. Have you all ever been to a really great museum? Like a really great one? Like, like the building itself is as cool as what's in it. You know what I'm talking about? It, it, like the architecture is transcendent. It, it's made, it's a container to hold what gets put inside of it. And so, yeah, when we, when we, begin, to, when we begin to take our sexuality and when we, when we begin to scatter it in all kinds of ways that are outside of God's, God's kind of chosen path, it's just like, it's like hanging a priceless painting in McDonald's. It gets defiled. And that's a scriptural word, defilement. This is what defilement means. Defilement means 
that there is residue left even after guilt and shame have been forgiven. Defilement is the residue that remains even after guilt and shame get forgiven. You know, here's the good news. Some of us, some of this, some of us here this morning have, have dealt with these issues or are currently dealing with these issues and that there's, there's tremendous amounts of guilt and shame surrounding them. And the good news this morning is, is that Jesus is capable and able of forgiving. And he will. He readily does it. He doesn't withhold forgiveness. But the other part, of the, the other part and this is one of the reasons that God puts boundaries around sex, is he knows that nothing defiles a person like sex outside of his boundaries. It means that even after guilt and shame are forgiven, there, there, is, a, there is a residue that's left. And what do I mean by that? Um, anybody ever have a dog get sprayed by a skunk? Yeah, yeah, exactly. The dog gets sprayed by a skunk, it drives you crazy, and what do you do? You wash the dog only to find what? You can't wash that stuff off. What does it take? It takes time, it takes time, it takes time, and it takes cleansing. It's like the Gulf oil spill right now, you know? The, the well's been capped for how many months? It's been capped for almost two months, except there's what? Massive amounts of oil blobs just floating around out there. That's what, that's what scripturally speaking, that's what defilement is like. Now, the good news about defilement is that when we continue on with the Lord, He is good and He is gracious and He is gentle and He is kind and He is so kind that eventually defilement is cleansed with some time and with some persistence and with some cleansing. Those things go. And this is, this is what I mean, um, especially with pornography. Uh, I, remember, I remember the first time I, I looked at a pornographic image. I was maybe 13... Well, maybe not 13. I was in middle school, and I remember someone brought some Playboys to school, and they showed them, and it was, it was an arresting moment, okay? This is one of the things that, that research has found out about pornography, that pornography is more addictive than, uh, than crack cocaine. It, there, is a, there is a high that comes from it that can't be, can't be attained any other way, and it actually changes your brain chemistry. And um, I remember for years that, that image... Uh, that image that I first saw in Playboy, it, it just stayed with me. It just, I, I, I don't, I, I even, you know, and it, it haunted me. There was a certain level at which it haunted me. I didn't want it. I wanted it gone, but I just couldn't get rid of it. And, um, and I would, you know, and I, it, was even, it was even beyond, like, you know, uh, beyond asking forgiveness from, from God. I mean, I, I had received his forgiveness. I had re- received his mercy. So it wasn't even a, necessarily a, a shame issue associated with it. It was just that it was imprinted. And here's, what, here's the, one of the other things they found out about, about pornography. When we view pornography, especially men, but when we view pornography, there's such a rush that happens that, um, that, that releases hormones in our brains. And, and the hormones that get released in our brains, the serotonin levels, just they spike, and it's in the, the front cortex. And when, those, when, those, uh, when we get a, a rush of hormone and, 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 and chemicals in our brain in the, in the frontal lobe, when we, get a, when we get a huge spike of those, one of the things that happens is anything we're looking at at the moment, anything we're looking at, whether it's real or whether it's fantasy, gets imprinted. And once it's imprinted, it changes the way we think. Okay? So we actually begin to build paths that go a certain way. And when that happens, it's what the Bible calls defilement. Okay? So I carried this image with me for years, and as I progressed with the Lord, and as the Lord began to heal me, and as I just became his friend, as I just began to walk with him and become his friend, become his friend, and become his friend, I realized one day, I can't even remember what, was that, what that image was. I remember looking at a Playboy. 
I remember being in the classroom. I even remember the friend who gave it to me. I can even remember the shirt I had on that day, but I can't remember what was on the page. So what's the good news? The good news is friendship with Jesus, just staying with him. You know, eventually what's going to happen is the BP oil spill will be cleaned up. It absolutely will. But take it from somebody who knows. You don't want defilement rolling around in your brain. It is, it, is, it is just not worth the price. Why is it such a big deal? <clears throat> it's because sexual sin, it, it, it erodes our, our identities in God, and it, leaves us, it can leave us defiled. It leaves us with, with patterns of thinking that have to be overcome, and they can only be overcome by His goodness. Now, here's the good news. Here's the really, really good news. Because like I said, this is something that touches every single person in the house. Good news comes out of, out of the book of Hebrews. This is one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. This is what it says. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. This is, this is incredibly good news for everyone in the room, especially, especially those of us who have, who have just been broken in our sexuality and who struggle maintaining a sexuality that honors God. When the Scripture says that Jesus was tempted, you know what that means? I'm going to take the stained glass right off of this, okay? When the Scriptures say that Jesus was tempted, what it really means is this. He thought about it. I guess most of you never considered Jesus in that way, have you? Yeah. Jesus, Jesus, knows, Jesus knows what it's like. Jesus knows what it's like to be sexually tempted and to, be, and to be sexually drawn in a way. He knows what it's like. He says, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness. You know, if you feel weak in an area, man, here's the good news. Jesus is the kind of God who knows exactly what it's like to be in your shoes. Because he was. Here's the, here's the better news. He's been tempted in every way. It means he thought about it, just as we are. Yet he's without sin. One other thing there, especially as it relates to sexuality. I, I just want to get this out there. You, you know, it's not a sin to have a sexual thought. See, Jesus was tempted in every way. And tempted means he thought about it. it wasn't, it's not a sin to have a sexual thought. It's sin when we begin to feed ourselves with sexual thought. There's a, that's a, there's a powerful difference there. When there's something on the inside of me that needs feeding, a little monster that needs feeding, that's a, that's a completely different thing. To, just, to, to have an encounter with someone and, and just briefly in, in the moment have a sexual thought come in your mind, that's not a sin. The Bible says just, the Bible says take every thought captive. It's a big deal. So the good news is this. We have a high priest who can sympathize with our weakness. The news actually gets better. Jesus, Jesus knows what it's like to be tormented in an area. And, and I, I, I've been around enough people to know this, that there's something about sexuality that is, man, it can be tormenting. You know, it's not just like bad news. It can be tormenting for, for people who are locked up in it. And Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted. Jesus also knows what it's like to be tormented. Um, the message of the cross is more than just Jesus' blood forgives all my sins. 
part of the message of the cross is Jesus knows what it's like to be tormented. He knows what it's like to, be, to, to suffer. He, he knows what it's like to be, to be bound. He knows what it's like to, you know, he was nailed to a cross. He knows what it's like to be constrained. He, uh, this is a, an incredibly comforting thought for, for me, especially when I'm in really, really difficult times and where even, even in times where my own choices have, have locked me in a prison and I feel tormented and I feel like there's no way out. This is a huge encouragement to me. You know, I don't have a God who, who sits on a golden throne and has zero idea what it's like to be in my shoes. I, have a, I, I, I serve a master who knows exactly what it's like to be tormented. He knows exactly what pain is all about. You know? The message of the cross is more than just forgiveness of sins. It is, it is that we have a God who has experienced torment, and he has experienced pain, and he has experienced suffering, and he knows intimately what the human condition is. Okay? Now, it gets even better that than that. We have a God who knows intimately what the human condition is. He knows about torment. He knows about pain. And he knows about suffering. And he's the same guy who says, everyone who is weary and heavy laden should come to me. This is really good news. Okay? We don't have the, we don't have the golden throne Jesus who's never experienced anything bad in his life saying, everyone who has problems just come to me. No, we have, we have the Jesus who has experienced torment, pain, and suffering, and that is the Jesus who says, everyone who is weary should come to me. Not only that, he says, Jesus says, I like you. You know, there is is an acceptance in Jesus, and and, and there's an acceptance in Jesus that is is most powerful because he he has been the kind of person who's experienced and endured suffering. And then, and then it, it gets, for me, it gets way better. There's, there's a verse in James that pretty much none of the church embraces. But James chapter 5, verse 16, it says, Hey, brothers, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. You know, if you are stuck, like if you are stuck in a moment right now, or if you're stuck in a season where, where your sexuality doesn't match up with, with God's kind of life, you know, there's a way out, and it just it, it comes by owning up to where you're at, and there's something about confession. And it's, it con- by the way, confession isn't about humiliation. No, con- confession is about is about getting liberty. You know, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. Does does confession mean that you have to confess your sins to every single person in the room? No, I I highly recommend you not do that. You know, there, there are sometimes these moments, you know, maybe you've ever experienced it at church where someone just stands up and just tells the whole room everything they've ever done. And it's, it's like looking at a, at a naked person. Yeah, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about. We're talking about a trusted friend, you know, someone who isn't afraid of your stuff. There's something, there's a liberty that comes. And the Catholic Church actually has a beat to, beat to death on this. They understand that confession, you know, Go to the priest. There, there, there is something about confession that will untie your soul like nothing else will. It was like Jack Deere, what he was talking about last week. Anything you can't talk about owns you. That hit the room hard. I felt it when he said it. It hit the room like a ton of bricks. Yeah, there's something about confession that just sets the soul free. Um, and I know that in, in my own life, in areas where I, have been, where I have been the most persecuted spiritually, the most, the most oppressed and tormented, I, I know that, that in those areas, when I've, 
when I've made when I've made the courageous decision and chose confession, like most of it comes off in that moment. See, I have I have two friends that I can tell anything to. And and you and I, I just want to say this right now. One of the one of the reasons that the church is so important is because it's it's supposed to be a place where we can develop those kinds of friendships. Where we can develop that any kind of thing relationship. Where where we can develop friendships with people and their friendships that are beyond just what Richard can do for me. It's just that we're brothers of the heart. And Richard can never really ultimately offend me. I am not afraid of Richard's stuff. You know, we need those kinds of relationships. And there's freedom that comes into that. There's liberty that comes in that. Amen? Amen. All right, here's what we're going to do. Um, we're going we're to take a time out here. Next week, we're going to talk about how to walk before the Lord with a pure heart. And um, that should be good. If you're on the ministry team this morning, I want you to come on up.